Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. Today, I want to welcome Judge Ashley Beal. And the reason I wanted Ashley on the show was, first of all, Ashley is about my age, so she's super young. And she is a judge, which I don't know any young judges. So I find it very fascinating that she holds this title and she does this job because this is a very complex job. So my goal with my podcast is to help people live better, do better, and be better. And I think Ashley really fits into this real well. So first of all, Ashley, please tell us about the beginning of your journey to becoming a judge. Okay. Well, I think that since I was a little child, I knew that I wanted to grow up and go to law school and become a lawyer. And during law school, I always envisioned that I would spend my legal career working with kids. It's just something that I always uh, had a passion for and interest in doing. And so um, when I graduated from UND, I actually came back to Minot. And at that time, the state's attorney's office in Ward County didn't have any openings. Um, Prosecution was kind of specifically what I wanted to do. And so Jim Maxson, who is an attorney here in Minot and who a lot of local people are familiar with in Minot and in Belva, he took me on as an associate. And so I wasn't doing anything with kids there, but I did learn to do a lot of other things or learned a lot of other practice areas uh, that would be useful to me later on. And so I worked with Jim and kind of just learned the ropes being a young attorney and practicing in a lot of different areas, probate, oil and gas, estate planning, business formation, things like that. And then one day I got a phone call from the Ward County State's Attorney, uh, who was Rosa Larson, who remains the Ward County State's Attorney. And she had asked me if I would be interested in coming over and being the juvenile court prosecutor, meaning Uh, prosecuting crimes committed or alleged to be committed by children, and then prosecuting deprivation cases, which are cases in which parents are alleged to have neglected some legal duty that they have or some legal obligation they have to their kids. And so I decided to do that. And I went there and I really enjoyed that. But after I had my second child, Greta, my daughter, I had a a little bit of of, uh, trouble just with health and things like that. I was kind of going through some things health-wise. And so I decided to retire uh, from prosecuting and I envisioned that I would stay home. But then after about a week of being home full-time, I was like, this is not for me. Um, And God bless the moms um, who that is their calling because it just wasn't my thing. I love to be home with my kids, just not all the time. So that at that time, it was very busy with the oil boom. And so the Indigent Defense Commission had a lot of contracts available. And specifically, they had a lot of juvenile contracts. So I went from prosecuting kids and prosecuting parents who were neglecting or abusing their kids to then defending or representing those same people. And so um, I loved doing defense work. I really didn't know how I would feel about it, but I absolutely loved it. I wish that I had done defense work before I prosecuted because it really gave me a different perspective and I think increased my uh, compassion for and understanding of people who engage in behavior that society often looks at and goes, oh my gosh, like, how could you ever do that? How could you ever, you know, mistreat your child or do something like that? 
Um, and then after doing those contracts for a long time, which was fine, I was approached by some members of law enforcement and just asked if I ever would be interested in running for a municipal judge. And, you know, just that they felt like it was something I should do. And so I kind of explored the idea. Um, at that time, uh, Judge Mark Rasmussen was in that position. He was a longtime incumbent. I want to say he did the job for like 38 years, except for a four-year stretch uh, when Aaron Bybetto acted as municipal judge. And so uh, running for that position meant that I had to run in a contested election, which is uncomfortable, especially for me, because I just don't like being in a position where people in the community, I, I would put myself into a position where people in the community could have bad things or negative things to say about me. I just don't like that feeling. Or, you know, the, the feeling of an election, like, we just don't like you. But it ended up working out. My family helped me campaign. We just, we had a few signs. I went door to door and ended up being elected. And so I've been doing that now since the summer of 2018. That primary election cycle was when I was elected. And I love it. Um, I see many familiar faces, uh, kids that I've prosecuted that are now adults, uh, people that I formerly represented as their defense attorney, um, people that I've come into contact via private legal matters. Um, and I just, I love what I do now. And it's very good for me. It's a very good fit for me being a young mom and having a spouse who's very busy with their work because I'm pretty flexible and I don't have to bring that work home with me. I kind of, I go there and make the decisions and not that I don't think about cases later on, but there's, there's nothing for me to do after the fact. So that's very nice. How frequently are you actually in court? So we have court, the court is open every day, Monday through Friday, but we only have court where we do appearances, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday mornings. And usually we start seeing prisoners. So people who get arrested for whatever offense and they haven't bonded out yet, um, they'll bring them over about 8.30. So I usually get there about eight. And we honestly generally wrap up with court by 11, 11.30 or noon on a long day. So it's a nice, it's a nice schedule. And then Fridays, we don't have court. We don't have uh, appearances. So when you are a judge, you you no longer have any... I mean, I know this is a silly question, but I really don't know anything about it. But so when you are a judge, you no longer have um, a private practice. Well, so that would be true if I were a district court judge, which is that judicial position is a full-time commitment. Sure. Municipal courts are different. And so... In Bismarck and maybe Fargo, those municipal judges probably don't maintain a private practice outside of their municipal judge responsibilities. But in my case, I can because like otherwise I have all this extra time. Um, and I mean, I love being a public servant, but like it doesn't necessarily afford me the the income that, that I, I want after having spent <laughs> years of my life in school. So I am fortunate in that I can spend my afternoons doing or engaging in whatever private um, legal practice that I want to, except that it can't result in a bunch of conflicts. For example, I could never take on a client who currently had an open case in municipal court or represent someone in a, an appeal from a case from municipal court, things like that. Okay, so you already answered a couple of my uh, questions there, but what is the most difficult then part of your job? I would say is seeing defendants who have unmet needs, be those mental health needs or economic needs. They, there's financial 
you know, things that they can't meet, financial obligations, they can't meet paying their bills, affording food for their children, things like that. They just are not functioning in a place where they can get things done that they need to get done in order to stay out of jail. Because unfortunately, the way our criminal justice system works, you get into trouble, right? You get fines and fees. Maybe you get ordered to take a class. Well, if you live, if your life is chaotic and you don't have any money and you can't pay your fines and you can't figure out how to get to wherever and get the course requirement done, you end up getting warrants and then you go back to jail and you know, a lot of times maybe you just got a new job. Well, then you get locked up and you lose your job. It's just a cycle that has a tendency to continue without intervention from community organizations or agencies. And so the hardest thing I deal with is when I either don't have the right services to provide to somebody or they're not willing to engage with those providers. They're just they don't want the help. I just did a Zoom call with Marco, the Minot area recovery community organization. And we talked about this concept of community courts. And one of the quotes that I recently read in an article about community courts was, the cases that we handle in our courts, specifically municipal court, because they're not, it's not murders, right? It's not felony drug dealing. I'm dealing with B misdemeanors, uh, infractions like possession of marijuana, marijuana paraphernalia, and then traffic stuff. The cases are not complex, but you're dealing with defendants who have very complex lives. And so bearing that in mind that even though the the cases might seem a sort of unimportant or to be not a big deal in the scheme of court cases, it's a big deal to the defendants and they have a lot going on in their lives. So we try to remember that. So when you talk about the defendants, so, you know, here I am who watches 48 hours and, you know, forensic files. So I'm seeing these defendants who are like major crimes, right? So in my mind, I'm thinking it's got to be so hard to defend someone like that. But when you were working in defense, you were not like on that scale. Like you're like everyday, like people who maybe hit a rough patch type defense. Is that more or less what you were doing? Well, so my municipal court caseload is what I just described to you, like pretty non-serious. I mean, they're serious. Don't get me wrong. They're just a low level criminal offense. So like DUI, first and second offense, petty theft, trespass, driving under suspension. But when I was a criminal defense attorney, I had both juvenile contracts and adult contracts. I represented uh, juvenile sex offenders, adult sex offenders. Oh, Um, In my juvenile cases, I represented individuals who were in juvenile court because they were accused of having murdered, you know, their significant other. And so children left without a parent essentially to take care of them. I've sat next to murderers and and sex offenders and people who are accused of dealing and being in the community with truckloads of drugs. And it's just part of what that contract entailed. So I can't say that I really had very many clients that I couldn't connect with on some level. Even my clients that I had who were facing charges of of sexual abuse or things like that, you usually don't see that without something in their own childhood that doesn't make you say, oh, now I get why you did what you did. And okay, I, I would never ever like go to the extreme of saying like, in any way, like endorsing or making someone feel like, oh, I, you know, what you did was understandable, but I can understand the path that led you uh, to the place. And so in doing that, I think you are able to at least 
uh, justify to yourself that this person deserves to have an advocate. They deserve to have an attorney who is going to tell their side of the situation and, and make them a human in the eyes of the court. And so, because it's not a defense attorney's job to get you out of the consequence or to help you escape, you know, culpability for something you really did. It's the defense attorney's job to just make sure that your rights are protected and that you you get all of the things that you're entitled to a fair trial. You have all of the discovery. If there's some other situation going on that would alleviate your responsibility that the court knows that. So those that's kind of how I view the job of it or the role of a defense attorney. Well, I like how I like that because I think for the lay person like myself, you know, it's so much it's so much more black and white like bad person, good person, you know, and that that obviously isn't the way it should, it should be, but when you are working with some of these people, were you ever scared to be with these people? Like, are you ever worried of, of, of with any of your clients or were you not? I would say there were maybe two out of hundreds of people that I've represented where, and, and even in those cases, I think that uh, their behavior that made me nervous was stemming from usage and things like that, not just like organically, that's who they were, you know, with some scary person, but, you know, just in a couple of situations, but I would say generally, you know, I was very rarely mistreated or, or, or treated disrespectfully by anyone that I've ever represented. It's taking me a little while to digest because again, when you watch these things on TV, which is always exaggerated, you know, it's, it's, that's, I find that very interesting. I find it. Yeah. Okay. So now let me lighten this up real quick. So you're wearing when you are wearing your robe, are you professional under that robe or are you wearing sweatpants? I No, I'm not wearing sweatpants usually, but I'm pretty casual. That's actually one of the things that I love about my job is that I can put a robe on. So in the summertime, I'm wearing right now what I had on in court. So I'll just wear jeans or, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. I do perform weddings occasionally after court. And so if I'm doing a wedding, I'll, I'll try a little bit harder. <laughs> But otherwise, no one knows. It's just my secret with my clerks, what I'm wearing. So it's good. <laughs> I like it. I like that. So then with with a judge, like since you're a judge now, will you always be a judge or will or would you like to not be a judge at some point? Or is this something that you want to do forever? I love what I'm doing now. I would have to run again, you know, every four years. So 2022 would be the next election cycle and I would run again. And I would love to run unopposed, but you never know. Somebody else could, you know, take an interest in doing that and and that would be fine. But yeah, I would love to do it as long as I can. And who knows the opportunities or, or things that might happen in the future. But right now it's a great fit for having a busy family and still allows me to, to practice privately. So it's kind of ideal, honestly. I don't, um, people have asked me before if I had aspirations of becoming a district court judge. And I'd have to say, I really don't. I the decisions and the things that they're handed to deal with are on a scale that I don't think at this point in my life anyway, I'm, I'm wanting to do. So. So being a young mom and working with some of the stuff that you've dealt with, like with the you know child abuse and, and such like that, is it ever, cause I know you said that, you know, you can turn it off when you go home, but like when you were doing the defense stuff, is that ever hard to turn off? Like you go home and you see your kids and you get a little emotional or you're laying in bed at night thinking, oh, you know, how could this happen? Or, you know, what's going through your head then? 
Um, yeah. So actually, part of the reason why I did run for municipal court was because it was a way for me to get rid of the sort of 24 hours of always being on call, especially as a defense attorney. It was not uncommon for me um, to not just fixate on cases, which I did a lot because your client's problems are just like in the front of your brain and you almost assume them and they almost become like your own problems, which I think some attorneys are better than others at separating that. Um, but for me, it was very hard. I'm a fixer and I just wanted to like make things better for people. And you can't always do that. But I, it would not be uncommon for me to have defendants uh, or clients at that time calling me at 11 o'clock at night saying that they were going to relapse and they needed Suboxone. And at that time we didn't, you know, there was nowhere that they could go get Suboxone. And so it was just like, you were just always on deck and always sort of, a lot of times the only person that a client had to go to for support, which really tells you something like literally you presumably have a mom and a dad or some responsible person who raised you, who you would have some kind of a caretaker bond with and you're calling your lawyer or they would call me to tell me the good things that happened to them or, you know, they got a new job or they, you know, they're, they had a baby or, or things and, and it's, I mean, that's nice that they want to tell me, but it also struck me as just being profoundly like sad because I'm your court appointed attorney and I'm the one who is, you know, receiving this important information from you. It's just, it's a different feeling and it's heavy all the time. You were playing several roles at one time for, I'm sure multiple people. Cause did you have multiple, multiple cases at one time or do you have a limit? on? Oh yeah. So when I was, it depends on the contract that you carry. Um, but for me, I would have like 10 juvenile case assignments per month. And then I think it was seven on the adult side. But keep in mind that criminal cases can go on for a year and a half, two years. And so as you get case assignments, some of those would resolve right away. People would plead out or people would abscond. And so you never you know, had to deal with them essentially. Um, but you would have, you know, a lot of cases at any point in time kind of in the air, you're trying to get them resolved. And so it meant, you know, a lot of phone calls with prosecutors to try to get stuff worked out and going to hearings on their behalf and trying to get people into treatment. And some clients would be calling you multiple times a day. Sometimes you would have moms and boyfriends and girlfriends calling you multiple times a day in addition to the defendant. And then sometimes you just wouldn't hear from them until you showed up at a court appearance and they would be there. So they're just very different and the workload would just fluctuate depend on, depending on the needs of you know my clients at that time. Did you have to change your number then after you stopped doing that? Nope, I didn't. I've only ever had my cell phone number, my same cell phone number in Minot. And I always have only had that phone for all the work that I've ever done. And I've honestly, I can't say that I've one time I got an inappropriate phone call, like in the middle of the night uh, from someone who I'm sure was just using. But other than that, I can't recall that I have ever felt like, oh man, I probably should change my number. It's, it's fine. <laughs> it's not a secret. Wow. Do you still get like what people that you have represented, you know, a few years ago, do they like, do you ever get contacted by them or is once they're done, they're done? 
Uh, no, I do actually. And I actually had one, well, I have a few that are like this. I, I have some former clients who are now good friends or who I consider good friends. And I have one client who went to, through the teen challenge program and completed treatment. And then she, so at that time, it's kind of a cool story. At that time, she had no contact with her kids. Her kids were with her sister and her sister and brother-in-law were like, we are done with you. We don't want And I called them on her behalf because she was so broken up about it. And they basically were just like, you have no idea what we've been through with her. Don't, you know, how dare you call us and even ask us to give her this chance. And I said, okay, you're right. I don't know. And, you know, I'm sorry for what you went through. And I just wanted to let you know she is doing X, Y, and Z. And so this is where she is. Well, so she had been at treatment for some time then. And I got a a card from her that said, three weeks ago, I got to have my kids come and have an overnight visit. And now she's like a functioning mom again. And she is, I believe she's an addiction counselor and works for Teen Challenge still. Wow. Yeah. So people can really be like, and this is a person who everybody, if you said, this person's name would be like, oh man, you know, she's just going to always be in the system. So I really believe that people, all people, you know, can be redeemed, can, can make better choices and live a productive life. It's just a matter of having the right support. So, so how could an average person like myself, how could a person help in this situation? Is there anything a person could do to help someone like you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the ways that just I can think of off the top of my head would be, and this might not apply here because we don't have a teen challenge, a physical teen challenge here, but like people who live in Bismarck and Mandan, after I started doing defense work, my mom contacted teen challenge and became a mentor for people going through teen challenge. And she has just really loved doing that. It's been a huge blessing to her to get to know some of these young women who are going through treatment and to be able to be a support to them because that's what it's meant as to be just another person in the community who is supporting, praying for these women. And additionally, you can do things like bring meals to the Men's Winter Refuge, which is a house here in Minot that men who are homeless during the winter time can go and stay so that they have a warm, safe place to lay their head at night. You can they always are needing meals, they're always needing hooded sweatshirts, things like that. There are just there are tons of organizations around town where you know people can involve to be mentors. Big brother, big sister, that is a wonderful program. And I know I personally had experiences in many juvenile cases where the big brother or big sister for a child uh, was like the only support, only consistent support that a child had. And that big brother or big sister would come to court with that child, uh, even end up taking that child on as a foster child or different things like that. So there are so many opportunities to be involved with at-risk youth or to help adults who just need supports, need transportation assistance, things like that. Uh, to get to and from jobs if they don't have a valid driver's license. I mean, there are opportunities there if you want those opportunities. They're everywhere. Awesome. So if if a person, like let's say I would call to see if I could do big brother, big sister. Is there ever anyone, let's say, in my actual community that would be needing that? Or do they only do it in like bigger communities like Minot, Bismarck, bigger cities? I'm... I'm sure that there is a need in all communities for it. So, you know, even potentially like with Big Brother, Big Sister, if they couldn't coordinate it, they might be willing to help somebody set up a program in Velva where, you know, there would be a Velva coordinator. But my guess would be that 
most small communities have a larger community close by that could case manage or coordinate those connections for smaller communities. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to get all of that information from you um, when we're done here so we can make sure that we post that to for anyone who has the time to yeah. get involved. Um, I want to know what some misconceptions people have about judges. Like what is the most common thing you kind of have to, I mean, I'm a chiropractor, so I get all sorts of things and you got to kind of set people straight nicely. How, what do you, what do you have to say? Like how, what are things that you need to set people straight on about your job and judges in general? Oh boy. Um, you know, I don't know as far as, Probably as far as being a judge goes, there's a lot of situations where you maybe wouldn't have written the law the way that it exists, uh, but you it's not your job to comment on it. Your job is just to apply the law and say whether or not somebody broke it. And so it's not a place for judges to be like, well, I don't agree with that, so I'm just not going to follow it or I'm, I'm going to deviate from that. And I think that that's hard for people. A lot of times it's very hard. Um, this sounds silly, but my traffic cases are like the hardest things I do because there is a lot of gray when you drive. Like if you pull up to a stop sign on a vacant country road and you roll through it and then you get pulled over for running a stop sign and you know, you have this nice farmer or somebody who comes in and is arguing like, who cares? You know, who cares that I didn't stop? There was nobody there. And just certain situations like that, where it's like no harm, no foul kind of thing, but it's not really the point. The point is we have this law, you didn't follow it. And so sometimes I have to really push aside my own feelings about like, oh, that's kind of silly. (laughs) And just say, you know, at the end of the day, this is what it is. And I don't, I can only speak for myself when I say I don't enjoy putting people in jail. I, uh, you know, that's something that's really hard for me, but in a lot of cases, I don't have discretion. It's mandatory. It's required by statute that for certain offenses, they have to do jail time. So that's something that's hard for me. And I, when I collect fines and fees, I think another misconception is that, you know, the, the city is just like flush with all this money that we get from from cases. But the, the reality is, is that we operate in the red and we always will. I mean, we operate with a, a deficit on our accounts receivables and it will always be that way and it will always grow. And so we certainly don't like, it's not a business. We don't make money. There's no profiting. The purpose of it really is just to ensure the the security and the well-being of people that live in the Minot community. And then as far as like, there are a lot of stereotypes about lawyers generally. And a lot of them are true, I would say. And <laughs> the, the jokes that you hear about lawyers, I don't know, you know, I, I've met a lot of lawyers and I don't know, they're all, they're all different, but some are bad and some are good. And just like in any profession, it's just the way it is. But I don't know, I, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all when people have feelings about lawyers because it's just based on their own personal experience. It doesn't have anything yes. to do with me. So is it exciting like if if court gets out of control and you gotta you're using the gavel a lot? Is that kind of exciting or is it not is it more confrontation like you don't like that? I um never have touched my gavel. I don't use my gavel ever. And don't you do have, have to like to adjourn? Aren't you supposed to do that? No, you don't you don't have to do it. There's a lot of different ways and different judges have different preferences about how formal or how and I don't know, I'm trying to think of the last time I saw a judge do gavel. 
boy, on TV was probably the last time, but <laughs> yeah, I have two of them. I have a really huge one that my mom bought me from like a yard sale or something. And then just the normal gavel that always sits up there. But I would say, so I've had a few situations where I've had someone come in, they're super upset and they're angry at me, right? Because I'm the one who's in front of them, who's telling them this information that they're upset about. And if I wanted to, there would be a lot of situations where I could puff up and say, you know, I'm the one with the power and, and you're not, and you need to listen to me. But I always ask myself like to what end, because if someone comes in and they're very upset, uh, me doing that isn't going to help them and it's not going to make them leave and go, okay, I get it. I, I maybe don't still agree with it, but I understand. And so what I usually try to do is say, you know, hang on, I'm not looking at you and making a decision about whether these things are true or they're not true, but I just want you to have all the information. So let's talk about it. And then I try to go through the things that they're upset about so that we can figure out a way where even if, like I said, they, they might not leave happy, they at least leave feeling like they were heard, like their voice was heard and their feelings were heard. And so we rarely, we have a couple of instances where we have uh, people who maybe have a traumatic brain injury or um, unmet mental health needs. And in those cases, it's very hard to get to that place. Um, but again, me flexing my muscle at them isn't going to achieve anything. It's not going to make anything better. And so I just don't. I had one gentleman, and this was closer to when I started, and he was going to put on a show for the other defendants that came over with him from jail. And so he was just mouthing off to me and um, calling me by my first name and, you know, making some references that were just highly inappropriate in, in that setting. And so I sent him back over and had him sit in jail. He came back the next day, uh, was mouthing off to the officer that brought him over. So I said, okay, well, we'll see you tomorrow and see if, you know, you want to be respectful tomorrow. And he came back that next day and he apologized to me and he has never been anything but respectful since then. And so um, he did end up going to prison later, but he is always kind and respectful and nice to me in court. We're kind of like, we get along well now. So I don't know. Generally, I feel like authoritarian is not something that I ascribe to. I like to try to get to a place where we can talk through it. You don't have to like me. You don't have to agree with me, but but I am listening to you kind of thing. So then how about when you're taking every people like, let's meet in my chambers. Do you ever have to talk like that or not so much? Um, you would laugh really hard if you saw what my chambers consist of. So in the <laughs> municipal courtroom, it's like we have this small courtroom and then my bench is up here and my chambers are, and I'm putting air quotes around that, is like a corner where there's like a little desk and my chair. So I would, I would never host a meeting there, (laughs) but no, it's, it's honestly, it's really unusual for defendants to be represented by attorneys in municipal court. I would say one out of 20 cases does a defendant have an attorney. And so we have the city attorney, the attorney who's there representing the case, you know, or presenting the case rather that the city is bringing and then myself and the defendant. And so I would never meet with the city attorney without the defendant about their case because that would be unfair. I would never talk to the defendant without the city attorney present. And so 
everything we do generally is done out in court. And the nice thing about municipal court is we have so much flexibility. Like a lot of times when we have a traffic case or even any kind of case, and there's a dispute about how something was handled, we might have somebody sitting in the back of the room who pipes up to help the court clear up a question. And as long as everybody's okay with it, who's in the room, we just roll with it. Because my position is that if there's information that can help us all get to a good place at the end, then let's have it. And that seems to work out. So when you said like the types of cases that you have, so the people do not have an attorney, but like some of the bigger cases that you represented, like before you were a judge, did you ever come across someone like when you were a prosecutor, did you ever come across someone who was going to defend themselves? Who was going to defend themselves? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. You have a handful of people who want to be pro se. There are some defendants who believe that public defenders are kind of bought and, you know, they're not really trying to do their job or they're not trying to get you a a good deal or, you know, fight for your case, which in my experience is not true. But I I understand why people have those perspectives or those viewpoints. But yeah, there are people who who represent themselves at trial and, and I've seen pro se defendants win cases. So... Really? It happens. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, not that you would recommend a person going into court without an attorney, but... In certain cases, I mean, we have a lot of cases in municipal court where people, we get a lot of shoplifting from Walmart, right? And so that's a circumstance where people just come in generally and are like, yeah, I did it. They They enter their plea and it's done in a day and they have a fine and fee. And usually I have them do an apology letter, which some people really like and some people think is a huge joke so <laughs> <laughs> so then when you would meet like I'm going back to this because again this does pretty this fascinates me so when you are meeting with your defense clients are you going to the jail to meet them are you meeting them on neutral ground or like what what happens there if they were in jail I would go to jail I've spent a lot of time specifically sitting outside of the Williams County Detention Center because they've gone through this whole thing where uh, you had to wait and get buzzed in. And so I would just sit at this picnic table. I have a lot of memories there. Um, I've visited people at, you know, Heart of America and Rugby and Ward County Jail and Watford City Jail and uh, in Bismarck, the Burley Morton Detention Center. And the only thing I don't like about meeting people in jail is that they're usually in crisis unless they've been sitting for a long time, in which case they're still really upset because they've been in jail for a long time. And it's just hard to get a feel for who somebody is or what their story is in that context. So I don't love meeting with people in jail, but that's what I do if people are in jail. And then, you know, a lot of times people would come to my office. I actually don't maintain an office anymore because all my business clients, I typically meet with them, you know, like in the boardroom at the bank or something. But yeah, they would come to my office. Occasionally, I would go to a defendant's home. That wouldn't be my preference just for personal safety and uh, to not be, you know, to be smart about the way I do my job. But if the circumstance necessitated it, I would do that. Then when we're watching things on TV, like all these different law shows, what is something like when you're watching that and you see it and you're thinking, oh, that is so fake or that would never happen? What are are some of the things that would you think that? Probably just... I mean, the speed at which like, you know, somebody would be, have like an initial appearance and then two days later they're depicted as being like in a trial, you know, a jury is seated and they're having a trial because in real life things don't move like that. I mean, there's, like I said, you know, cases in district court can go on for years and and federal court, same thing. Actually, federal court maybe moves 
more quickly just because everything's so rigid in terms of what you can and can't do and sentencing and everything. Um, but I mean, it's just, that's not like reasonable. And like, of course, the way people behave in court, you know, attorneys on TV are very dramatic. And generally speaking, like it's one thing to be passionate in a court case, but judges here don't like a lot of aggressive, like showy kind of courtroom tactics from attorneys because it's, it doesn't really serve a purpose. It doesn't really help your client. That's interesting because you see these shows and there is a lot of times drama and it's like, oh, but really it's just kind of fake, huh? I mean, well, in the context of TV, I suppose it's always fake, but um, <laughs> and not, not to say that there's not a lot of drama that happens in a courtroom because there is, but it's just like natural. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is to me, it's unnecessary to have an attorney who is trying to increase that drama by using words or things that are real inflammatory or, you know what I mean? Just go out of their way to kind of pump up the atmosphere and make it even more tense. Well, I do have other questions for you, but I know that you do have a busy lifestyle. But what is one thing then with people listening today, if you could encourage them to do one thing to uh, be better, do better, live better, what would you encourage them to do? Boy, that's hard. Not because I can't think of anything, but because I'm trying to think of what would be the most impactful. I guess across time, what I have found makes the biggest difference to other people from my perspective and makes me feel the most satisfied and like it promotes personal growth for me is when I literally go from the beginning of the day to the end and when I see a need that I can meet, I will do everything that I can to meet it. Okay. So like whatever that might be, uh, holding the door for somebody who's struggling with their hands full or just whatever need that there is that I can meet, I'm going to do it. And I want to do that so that my kids can see that and I can demonstrate to them that that's how I want them to live their lives. And also so that my whole community is better for it. Because if I have a friend, for example, who is struggling or has struggled with addiction and they need help and support to maintain sobriety. And so I need to get up every two hours through the night and call them and make sure that everything's okay or be available to them to come over, you know, at the drop of a hat, like I'm going to do those things because we all benefit from someone maintaining sobriety. We all benefit from somebody who is in the grocery store with their three kids that are freaking out and they're about to lose their mind. Like we all benefit from that mom not, you know, losing her cool. And so, you know, taking the time to say like, can I help you with your little one? Or, you know, is there something I can do, you know, to make this easier for you? Um, Just in those common situations, it's not always going to be as heroic as, you know, intervening to prevent you know, whatever big thing, but just something as simple as even a kind word or just saying like, Hey, you know, you've really got your hands full. You're really doing a good job or just something to encourage people might sometimes be the only thing that, that gets them through a day. And I should just tell you this too, because I just think it's cool. I always put little sayings or like motivational things on my whiteboard in my courtroom. And for whatever reason, this last week I had gotten erased and I just hadn't written anything up there. And I had two defendants come in and were like, where's that stuff you always have written up there? You know, we always, we always read those. And um, so people really notice, even if you think they don't and don't help people expecting a certain reaction, 
do it because you know helping is the right thing to do, not because you want the person to be like, oh, thank you so much, because a lot of times people won't. And it doesn't mean that they're not thankful, but it's just not all people react the same way. And so just do what's right because it's the right thing to do. Well, you are definitely an asset to the Minot community. So I'm glad you are doing what you're doing there. And it sounds like you're doing a pretty darn good job. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for visiting with me. Yes. Thanks for visiting with me and have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated. 